The work really comes from being out in the world. It's really in response to situations. And I think at the pace of the body in motion. If I'm moving and responsive, and if I then can pay attention to where my attention is drawn, then the work comes from that. But it, it comes in paying attention to experience. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. To experience one of Anne Hamilton's large-scale public installations is to be transported into a world of invention unlike any I have ever known. Recognized for her large-scale public projects and performance collaborations, Anne uses space as her canvas and fills it with a sense of mystery and drama that speaks right to the theatre director in me. I was lucky enough to immerse myself in her extraordinary 2012 installation, The Event of a Thread, at New York's Park Avenue Armory. The hauntingly beautiful piece filled the large space with billowing white fabric panels and an array of swings inviting participants to experience a joy and weightlessness too often relegated to childhood. The experience was indelible. I've now interviewed her twice, once two years ago for my book, and again last month for this episode of Change Lab. Both times she welcomed me into her process with an openness of spirit and intellect all her own. Each conversation unfolded like a journey to the core of the ideas that animate all her work. I'm particularly excited to share the revelations that emerged in our latest exchange about improvisation and the power of cultivating, in her words, a space of not knowing. It's so core to my interests and brings out the creative power and exhilaration that comes from braving uncertainty and lingering in the mysterious I don't know. Please enjoy my conversation with Anne Hamilton. Lots to get into, and I'm so, so happy to be talking to you again. I think what would be wonderful, if it's okay with you, if you wouldn't mind just describing your practice for listeners who might not be familiar with your work and as a way to get into it, and then we can begin to explore some of our questions and thoughts about making. I would say what I do is very responsive to the conditions in which I find myself, and I'm very lucky to find myself in some very wonderful conditions, but I'm a visual artist and I make work in multiple forms and durations that evolves in response to a space 
or a social situation, circumstance, history, and materials. Every project is really very different, but the thread I would say that runs through everything that I do is really informed by what I learned as a really young child, which is how to knit and sew and embroider and needlepoint and the kind of hand making at the scale of the lap. And although I don't necessarily work so much at that scale right now, I think all of the underlayment that that gives me for thinking about spatial relationships and social relationships and forms, the visual artwork that I make. Most of it is, I think, pretty ephemeral. It takes place for a duration of time, and then materials go back into the world, often from which they came. I would say that cloth is in almost every single thing that I do. And a tactile quality is a major aspect consciously and unconsciously, whether that's sound or material. And I love most deliciously the beginning of a project when you don't know what it's going to become, but everything feels possible. Much of that very point to come. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I am so deeply compelled by your work and have have really found a profound resonance with how you talk about your process and your perspective on the power of making, which is so relevant to this writing that Mm -hmm. I've just done in this book that I've just created. And so much of it is inspired by your reflections and what you've talked about. And the book is sort of organized around four ways of talking about make to know and that process. And maybe I thought it would be good for us to loosely structure our conversation around those four Mm -hmm. ideas. The first is entering uncertainty. The second is engaging materials. The third is solving problems. And the fourth is improvisation. I know all of those (laughs) very well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I learned a lot of those from you. But in, in the end, you know, really coming through and talking with all these wonderful people, the making knowing relationship really ended up being aspects of all those four things. So maybe if we could start with entering uncertainty, which I've learned so much from you about this, and you make it active, you make uncertainty deliberate. You talk about, as a quote, cultivating a place of not knowing. Mm-hmm. So it would be really wonderful to start there with your question, how do you cultivate a space that allows you to dwell in the not knowing? And why is it so important? You know, it, it's interesting because I think I was having a conversation just the other night with a colleague at the university, and we were talking about how important it is for students to trust a process of not knowing, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and and actually how hard it is often to do that, because we all live in a culture that is asking us to articulate what something is, or what it means, or what its efficacy will be, or, you know, any number of things. And, you know, the most powerful thing is to say, I don't know. I don't know yet. (laughs) And so, you know, I think over time, I have just learned through many projects and processes to trust the process. I think cultivating a process is to find a process that you can think in and to allow it to remain open as long as you can to remain unfixed, to like 
even at the last moment, say, well, this could change the way as it, it does in theater and performance, which you, you obviously come out of, and that it's a live process, and it is alive. And if you try to fix it too early, then you, know, you suffocate it, and you take the air away from it continuing to evolve. And maybe it's because there's also never a final thing. Right? It's always a show may open, but the next day is yet another part of what it becomes. So learning to, to sit with that or to operate from that is really important. I have a little story. I have a 26-year-old son, and I remember when you know he was going off to college and then after he was even graduating and he talked to me about the tremendous pressure some of his friends were under to say what they were going to do or what they were going to be or what they were going to study really in a very assured way. And I said to him, well, Emmett, his name is Emmett. I said, you know, you don't have to know. You just have to have the suitcase handle, but you don't have to have the suitcase underneath it. <laughs> And so when it makes people very nervous, you can say, well, I'm interested in this. And then you've held on to that handle and they can also hold on to this handle and be less nervous about your future. But you really don't have to have the suitcase. Right. right. Yeah. And uncertainty, not knowing is stressful. I mean, it's a place of anxiety, but it's also a place where if you can get in there, you can begin to mm -hmm. discover and learn. I think if you become afraid, it becomes very hard to stay in that place. Right. And deadlines and money and all sorts of things can, you know, make one nervous and afraid. So it's like, how do you, like, again, trust or hold on, have faith that even if it's... <laughs> Even if it's some sort of failure, whatever that might mean, you know, like you, you still have to kind of go the road of it. And, you know, the poet Susan Stewart, who I revere and is a friend, she said to me once, the nose of your work knows where to go before you, you yourself know where to go. Exactly. And so you have to give over to that. You know, I think in our culture, we call so much of it intuition. Like, how do you know to go in that door, not that door, not this other door? Why does your stomach or your body or like something in you recognize, oh, this is the material or this is the question or this is the place? I think that's the thing that's so really, really hard to articulate. Like, how do you know? Because is, it, is this a real question? Is this the question? Or is this that you're so nervous because you don't know that you're trying to hold on to the thing that's not there yet? So, so much of, of one's process, as you well know yourself, is waiting. Mm. It's waiting. It's being present with what is going on, being patient with it. Until you recognize something. That, at least, is mm -hmm. the word that you used when we met yeah. in 2017, that you come to a point of recognition. Yeah, and you, and, but sometimes you think, like, am I trying to talk myself into this, or is this really feel right? And so, ultimately, it's kind of both this, like, kind of sometimes a very much a head process, but also a stomach process, and you're, like, trying to get the two on the same channel. Right. 
You know, one of the really interesting parts of the conversation that I had with the artists and designers I talked to for the book was their entry points into these mm. places of uncertainty. You know, yeah. some had questions, some had a vague notion, some had some kind of stirring idea. Some people felt it in their stomach. It was one poet who said to me, I have a churning and it needs to come out in rhythm and words. Mm. And I'm wondering how you think about that. I think for me, it's a weaving of many different things that actually make that space. So in the one hand, although I have a studio and I have stuff in my studio, materials and things, the work really comes from being out in the world. It's really in response to situations. And I think at the pace of the body in motion. I know so much happens. It's like if, I, if I'm moving and responsive, and if I then can pay attention to where my attention is drawn, then the work comes from that. But it, it comes in paying attention to experience. And that can be visiting a place, traveling, but I think also really importantly, it can happen in reading. So often it's a single word or three words that come forward from the page and touch me. And there's some sort of recognition that catalyzes something I might have been thinking about that I didn't know I was thinking about or paying attention to that helps me bring into my own maybe consciousness. I don't know what the right word is. Like, oh yes, that word helps articulate this thing that I'm thinking about, that I'm feeling, or, oh yes, this helps me form that question. So there's a part of it that's very, I would say, physical, and then there's a part that's very language-based. And it's really the way those weave back and forth and through each other, informing each other. I mean, even in the way you just characterized that, this notion of, ah, yeah. I, I'm seeing it again, or that's what it was. Yeah. You know, when I've talked to writers about their process, they would always talk about, they would write and then they would be surprised often by what mm -hmm. they discovered in the midst of the writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you were very, very firm on saying, for you, it wasn't surprise. Yeah, or your intention, or, and you have to lose your expectation, really, because so much of my work is really made in response to an architectural space. One of the things I've really learned and I've uh, articulated other places is like, like the preparation is to be blank <laughs> in some ways, to have no expectations. I mean, I can't help but bring myself with me and form habits and everything but it's more that I don't know what is here yet and it's like licking your finger and lifting it to the atmosphere to see where your thinking or your attention or your vision is turned why do I keep turning towards the light <laughs> for example So here we are 
dwelling in this place of uncertainty, but one way in which we can begin the making is to engage materials. Well, maybe another space I didn't talk about was like going to the flea market, going to the junk store, going to the museum, going to encyclopedic museums, Google images online, you know, like that, that looking at stuff in the world is endlessly fascinating and engaging. And, you know, I think that I think a lot about materials where they come from, you know, their economies, their production, their social histories. And so when I'm at the beginning of a project, you know, I think I'm seeking what materiality the questions might be able to take form in, because it's really how the questions you have come to be embodied in something that someone else can experience and share in in some way. And that through material and space, and I include light and sound in material. But like I just came back from a trip and in one of the flea markets, I picked up these really beautiful old thread cards so you have a printed card and it's wound again and again with a yarn and it makes a beautiful vertical row. And, you know, so I, I pick this up and I'm like, I know there's a project in there some way, <laughs> somewhere. I, I don't know where and it may be 10 years down the road, but, you know, my hand was drawn to it. And so part of it is like when you start to turn things over in your hand, it's like, well, try to understand why you're drawn to it. And what I love about what you just said about the objects in the flea market is that we have to understand that as part of the making. Mm -hmm. It's not some preliminary thing, really. It's right no. there at the heart of it. Yeah. Well, I grew up with these textile processes and they're an underlayment for me. They're like I uh, my first hand. And so I have a material process that has is both a physical act and also full of metaphors and the possibilities of social relations. I mean, when the social fabric is, you know, if you just pay attention any one day in the newspaper, how many times the textile metaphor is used, it's quite interesting. And so I feel like I'm really lucky to have those processes. And I think about how many people are growing up and they don't necessarily have material physical processes. They might be more digital, increasingly obviously screen-oriented, and those are real processes and they're tactile in a different way. But I think that it's a different reservoir to work out of. And one of the things that I see in teaching is really trying to understand, well, what's the reservoir of hand knowledge or material knowledge someone might come into their own practice with and how do you want or need to grow that so it's interesting i'm sure you see this at art center that increasingly there are many students you know being drawn more and more towards what we might call craft-based processes because we think through touching things. And this is obviously core to some of, of your book in many ways, that it's like it's in the touching, it's in the changing something from one state to another. Whether right. you're knitting a sweater or you're painting a room or you're, you know, writing a score, but it's like this thing is like transforming and, and you don't, 
know necessarily, you know, the end point always. And, and it's like that, that being engaged in that process is also where you lose yourself. You forget yourself and you forget your intentions because you're so present in the thing that, 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 that you're doing that it's very active, but I think you're thinking from a different place. I completely resonate with that. And I just need to add, I've always recognized your work as fundamentally theatrical. I really have. You know? mm-hmm. And from my first experience at, at the Cap Street Project, that's when I first discovered you with the honey and pennies and mm-hmm. the figure. And it was this beautiful play, really, I thought. Yeah. It was <laughs> Well, see, this is the problem of like objects for me, right? So at Cap Street, maybe it's interesting for people to hear like that we took the budget for the piece and exchanged it or, pennies, or cashed yeah. it in in the form of pennies. And that became literally the material of the work. The pennies were laid into the floor, laid across the floor. And it really was like a giant carpet. They were just laid one by one, like loop by loop. A uh, carpet might be woven. In the honey, correct? In a skin of honey, yeah. So you had the animal economy and the abstract mineral economy and the human economy all in one surface. And then there were three sheep living in the back of the space on a bed of alfalfa. And there was a person who was um, many different people who helped, but that were wringing their hands in a felt hat full of honey facing this huge carpet of pennies. And it's not a theater, right? There isn't like an audience out there. People are wandering in and out, but it's more a visual arts space. And so how to maintain or care for or animate that ongoing time for many, many years has been both a a practical and interesting conceptual dilemma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, at the risk of pushing the point too far, these elements of the pennies and the honey and the figures and the sheep, they're in dialogue and having a conversation and we enter and that is a theatrical space to me and Mm -hmm. there is something dynamic going on that is, at least for me, what I think is deeply mm-hmm. special about the theater. I think, yeah, that's, thank you for for sort of clarifying that, Lauren, because I think what you're saying and that I, it's, it's that, or maybe another way for me to try to articulate it is that it's really in relationship that the piece is. So it may, you may have 800,000 pennies or you may have so much honey or so much cloth or whatever, but they are not the work, in fact. The work is the relationships between them. And that, I think, is what you're describing. And the dynamic and the movement. Yeah, yeah, completely. And the rhythm and the music, right? So this third way of the making that I talk about anyway is solving problems. And I learn a lot from designers who teach me a lot about 
making as problem solving. And I'm interested in how you might consider that question. Well, what happens is you have this feeling in your gut that, okay, this is the right thing. Like you're going towards whatever. You've got a sense of form and material. And then you have to figure out how to do it because it's really not just an idea on a piece of paper, right? And the logistics and the world that each project takes me into, I think is is really some of the most fun and interesting part, even if it's nerve-wracking. Like one of the things when we were working on the project with Christy Edmonds at the Armory the, that I wanted the readers to read to a flock of pigeons. And so I learned a lot about pigeons and pigeon navigation. We found, I live in Ohio, we found somebody here who raises pigeons. He worked with us to train them in his barn to fly to their food, to the sound of a school bell over a white cloth. And we were trying to like do a behavior modification thing. And then we had to figure out how to get these pigeons to New York. And I found out that the only way to ship them is through the U.S. Postal Service overnight and in particular boxes for fowl. And you they arrive overnight. The vet has to come. And, you, ha- you know, like each we had to have papers, we on and on and on. And they had veterinary visits during the duration of the project. They had to go back to Ohio. Like all of the logistics of that are where the stories come from, right? Like you only have so much time and and everybody's like working to kind of solve a sort of sometimes seemingly impossible problem. And you have to, I think this leads to really the next thing is about how you have to improvise because sometimes you don't get there. Like, I don't know if we talked about this when you visited, but in the, in the armory, there's just, there was this crucial thing that happened. So Marty Chafkin, who I've worked with on many projects, was coming in from Lexington Avenue where there was a, there's a big roll-up door where the trucks load in and out of the armory space. And I was at the opposite end at the entrance off of Park Avenue. And he was driving his truck in and it rolled up and I could see the light. And I understood for the first time that, oh, this spine of light that connects where I'm standing here at this entrance to that, that's what will complete this piece. And for all sorts of different reasons that have to do with what was in the project. And there was a really wonderful TD director there. And he's like, we have this system where maybe we could use it. We could replace it. We could put this temporary door in and put the plexi in. We had, I think, two weeks to make what was fairly large change. It was what made the piece work. Because now it wasn't like you didn't walk around and like it wasn't a dead end. It was where the sound ended up at the end of every day where we cut a a record with each vocalist. But also what was really important is that you could see in now for the first time in the history of the Armory from Lexington Avenue. So that big, huge cavernous space in some way through that very small, relatively small aperture was returned 
to the city, to the street, to the people walking by. It's so good. I love that story. I love that. And just circling back to what you were saying before, it's a wonderful example of what it means to be in a state of readiness so you can recognize what is needed or what it needs to be, maybe is the best way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's live and it's being made. And I think certainly when you come out of theater, you understand that every performance is its own piece. I think sometimes you go into like an installation and you you know you have to have a lot of things figured out and ready to go. But it's that thing we talked about at the very beginning. You have to let it remain open to be changed and influenced by what happens. And if you don't leave it open, then it it can't continue to become what it needs to be. And you can't know what it needs to be in the beginning. The problem-solving piece, just to wrap that up before we go into improvisation a little bit, is also what designers had really taught me was that problem-solving is about creating conditions for knowing through constraints. The paradox of the more the constraints exist, really, the more possibility opens. And Mm -hmm. I suspect that's very relevant for you as well. Yeah, I think that's why I I so need architecture, whether that's like a physical space or like uh, a book is a is a kind of architecture, and it's like, it's like okay, so like I know what I'm pressing against. A good friend of mine always said to me, and you know, part of the art is working within the budget, and that's a constraint, obvi- obviously a very realistic one, and and it's like that that it makes you perhaps be fleet, you know, in terms of how you have to address something. Nice word. Yeah. Yeah. And designers seek seek that constraint, really, as a necessary element of the making and of the solving of the problem. Yeah, because you have to have a structure, right? So the structure gives you something to press against. I think sometimes when things are just totally open, which it's actually really hard to orient yourself, like whether that's a constraint of time or any number of things. So it's a great transition, actually, to talk about improvisation. And of course, what interests me so much about improvisation is that the thing made and the thing being made are one and the same and simultaneous. Mm -hmm. And that's such a wonderful illustration, I think, of what we've been talking about. But it's also relevant to this notion of constraints that we were just talking about too, because improvisation can't happen in nothingness. It needs a context. It needs a frame, mm-hmm. right? The jazz musician needs a tune to begin to rip off or a chord progression or something. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about how this works for you. You build these frames, but within it, the breeze blows. Within it, you begin to improvise. You play, you touch, you discover, you place objects, you get into your process of making. Yeah, I I mean, I think that the process of something evolving is sometimes, well, like for me, I have tables in a lot of, especially early work, tables are like my blank page, but it's like you don't know in what relationship they are in yet to a number of other things. And so there's this kind of what if constantly. Again, don't assume 
too quickly you understand where things go because you have to keep it's this feeling like you have to keep throwing everything up in the air to see where it settles and each time it, it settles a little differently and it's the same thing with language right like if i describe this condition a little differently to myself does it open up my ability to think about it in another way mm-hmm. so those are maybe more solitary improvisatory processes in one's own kind of musings and thinkings and sketchings. And then there's the improvisation that happens when you're actually in a space, actually making it and it coming to be. And your idea about what that might be and the thing in front of you, there's often a wide delta (laughs) between that. And so, you know, there's that point where like, I keep thinking about like my idea for what I thought this would do, or like, how do I respond to the thing in front of me and what it actually is and what it's doing. And it's like, because in there is the information I need for whatever's going to happen next. That's such a great way to put it. There it is. Yeah. It's there. That's a great way to talk about improvisation, actually. Yeah. And it's like, you have to respond to the thing that's there. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to some theater artists who had studied clown with Jacques Lecoq in Paris. Mm. And Lecoq used to use a a neutral mask as a training device, really. And the actor would would put the mask on, and by really obliterating the face and the voice, the actor couldn't say anything else, the mask would create a state of hyper-availability to the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. Wow. It would be a process of discovering what the body knows mm-hmm. by holding a certain place back, but allowing back. something else to come forward. Yeah. yeah. It seems so deeply relevant to your work, creating conditions really to find what, out what the body knows, as you were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that, that it's also trying to find forms for inviting other people into that for themselves, right? So not to have the experience you're having necessarily, but to, I don't know, do, like where, do you have that experience when you're reading something or in the theater or listening to music where it's almost like it lets you sit inside yourself in a way that you don't even know how to do. And Absolutely. And I think I, I, I have learned, you know, through various projects and stuff to understand process. And I think to improvise, it's also really important to understand or maybe articulate for oneself, like what, what one's question is. Like when I start a project, it's like, you know, there's a long searching, which is like, well, what is this condition asking for? What does it need? What does it need of me? Or what what can I bring to it? All those things are kind of external to me, really. It, it is this feeling of needing to find the question that needs to be asked or to find the way of saying that we need to hear for the condition in which we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that is something again that's just like never fixed like but it has to you have to like when you're working on a project you have to stick your rudder in somewhere and you're like i know that this is the right kind of question like like at the armory i was thinking a lot about intimacy and how the condition of being alone together 
is is a is a kind of very special kind of civic space. And I was thinking about, well, like one of the most intimate things I think that you can maybe share side by side with another person is like to be read to. So like mm-hmm. there's this kind of intimacy of voice and time and often maybe even pressed, you know, arm to arm or side by side in some way, a child to maybe a grandparent or a parent and how there's, there's so much going on in that that's not just the thing being read. And how in a public space can there be a kind of felt intimacy? You know, for listeners, you're, you know, the referencing the project in the armory was Event of the Thread. And that's, what is that, like a 55,000 square foot space, something like Un- unfathomable. Well, it's the size of a city block yeah. in New York City. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. And what that did to create a sense of, intimacy in this huge space. Yeah. Yeah. And of this amazing kind of coordination of what we do is is even in our small spaces affects so many other things that are going on at the same time and create community. Yeah, because everything is connected to everything right. else as right. it was in that piece. As it was in uh-huh. that piece, yeah. You know, just maybe another comment about that piece in terms of maybe intuition and improvisation is that, you know, the physical structure, the trusses, the steel trusses that create the arc of that piece. The first time I walked in there with Christy Edmonds, I was like, we need to swing from these. You know, like it's so not, it's just a response. And then you could ignore that response and say, or you could really pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so half of the, the process is knowing what to pay attention to. And to wrap up this piece on improvisation too, Event of the Thread is a great example, but so much of your work is, it's improvisational in that it happens in the moment there is an interaction of bodies, of people, of audience, of readers, of speakers, of poets, of auditors, of figures, of sheep of pennies. It's built really on an improvisational concept in the experience of it. Yeah. I, I That's interesting to hear you say it that way, because I don't know that I would have ever art- quite articulated it like that. And that gives me something new to chew on. Thank you. So today is, we're recording this conversation on the 10th of September, and tomorrow, of course, is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which prompts me to ask you about your project at Cortland Subway, and if you might tell the listeners a little bit about that, and that might be a nice way for us to wrap up some of the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, so I think about it really as a gift that I was invited, or my proposal was invited to become the subway station at World Trade Center, Cortland Station, which was closed after 9-11 because of all the structural obvious damage and is the it's on the number one line as it goes through South Manhattan and it's the site or the stop where you might get off to go visit the museum and visit the memorial site. So while it's not 
literally part of the memorial site. It is the threshold. And I made a piece in white marble mosaic, little tiny white marble that is a text-based piece that weaves together in relief each letter the phrases from the preamble to the Declaration of Independence with the occurrence of those words in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so it takes two foundational documents that are expressions and I think demonstrations of civic aspiration for the kind of social relationships in life that happen above ground. And the form of that piece is really important because it's white on white. The letters are not of another material, but a whole, I worked with Franz Meyer in Munich and a whole white ground of tiny little marble pieces was created as a continuous field. And then the letters in Trajan font were cut from that ground. And each letter was then regrouted by hand back into the space from which it had been cut. So each letter is proud of the surface. So it means that in its form, that as you walk by it, it's constantly being recomposed because every person passing along the length of the platform, their eye is catching a different sequence of words from these foundational texts. And in that way, I was thinking a lot about how it keeps these words alive Mm -hmm. and in our bodies and in our imagination and as a possibility. The spine on the northbound side, which is the side that opens into the huge white cavernous Calatrava space is the word everyone and the currents of the word everyone in the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which was authored and signed internationally, also at a time of enormous change in the world and following, obviously, the trauma of the Second World War. So, you know, try to find a form that could hold all the sorrow of what has happened and the possibility of the future was really the the work I felt like that I was given, you know, for that project. And I I love that it's there, that it's quiet, that those words, the chorus of words, will continue to have a life, that you can find it. If you step out of the subway car and you're looking towards the wall, the almost reflexive reaction or reflexive gesture is to reach out and touch those words. And in the in that enactment, maybe those ideals come forward in our actions. Beautiful. And say more, because because it goes so deep into the experience of that particular place and that particular community. I I think that it's, you know, national and international documents that are woven. Yeah. I think that it is made up, you know, like loops on a sweater of all these individual pieces. And, you know, for the social fabric to hold, we all have to do our piece to hold that cloth together. And in this sense, it's actually there in stone. So uh, it's aspirational, it's optimistic, it's historic. I think speaking with the director of the Transit Museum, she was said some beautiful words because she had worked 
right there adjacent to the site. And she said, you know, it holds both something for me personally. I experience this event, but it also speaks to the global world that we live in. And to hold that, you know, we're in a moment in the culture which feels very extreme in the tension between the solitary individual and the collective and the responsibility to the collective. And and I think there's something in the form of this piece in its made-by-hand, piece-by-piece, that maybe holds that physically. Mm-hmm. And the deeply powerful metaphor of the, of the weaving, too. It's the words, like we hold these truths. It's the we hold these truths. It's those words in the UN document that form the horizontal lines. And so, yeah, literally they're woven together to make that wall. Yeah. I remember, I think you talked about what's below the cloth, the the act of sewing, Mm -hmm. right? There's this invisibility that we're able to touch, but we don't necessarily see it, right? That is, yeah. Is below the surface. You know, that's a way that I've really, it's so funny because I think for so long I was, I think, I think in some ways, you know, I, way early on in, in, one tends to maybe feel like one needs to erase one's history instead of embrace it. And I think I've come to even understand and articulate and foreground more and more how important that those processes of sewing and stitching are. And so what you're remembering is like that this thing happens when you sew. So you're holding a piece of cloth and you have a thread in a needle and that needle goes down through the cloth to a space that you cannot see. And although it's tethered to the length of that thread, it pulls up the space of what is not seen or what is not known into the legibility is what of what is in front of you and i think that is just such a a beautiful act and a metaphor for what the act of making actually is this bringing up from what you can't see into your hands to something that you can know what a gorgeous gorgeous way to conclude this conversation this wonderful conversation that's so lovely Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much, really. Yeah. I appreciate it. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Lauren Mahoney, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant, Christopher Olin. Please take a moment to support us. You can do this by heading to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to rate and review our show. And while you're at it, share us with someone who is curious about the creative process. That's it for this week on ChangeLab. <laughs>